0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. When one of the heart's natural pumps isn't working well, a ventricular assist device, a mechanical pump, can be used to increase the amount of blood that flows through the body.
2: Having a bad implanted can improve quality of life for people with heart failure or those who are awaiting a heart transplant. Although a VAD
1: can be placed on the left, right, or both ventricles of your heart, it's most frequently used in the left ventricle.
2: On today's program, we'll learn more about VAD and heart transplant from a Mayo Clinic expert.
1: Also on the program, we'll learn about a minimally invasive way to treat COPD.
2: And improving treatments for ovarian cancer. That's this week's program, up next.
1: Heart disease remains the number one killer of both men and women in the United States. But we are making progress. People are living longer than ever before. Now, one of the ways that heart specialists can help people whose heart is failing is with a ventricular assist device, or VAD, or VAD.
2: A VAD. Yeah. All right. Tell us about that. What is it? It's an implantable (laughs) mechanical pump that helps pump blood from the lower chambers of your heart, the ventricles, out to the rest of the body. It's used for several different reasons, including for some patients while they wait for a heart transplant. And here to tell us more about the ventricular assist device and heart transplants is Mayo Clinic cardiothoracic surgeon, Dr. John Stulak. Welcome to the program.
3: Truly an honor, long-time listener, (laughs) first-time contestant, I
2: guess.
1: VAD, ventricular assist device. Tell us about this device and and when you use it.
3: Sure. This is uh, what we would call a treatment for advanced heart failure. Some patients can be maintained on medications. The uh, device really is for the patient who's failing despite optimal medical management. So it's an unconventional solution. But uh, in the last 20, 25 years, dramatic improvements have been made in the device design, our knowledge about the treatment, perioperative care, etc. cetera. And uh, it's kind of space age in the beginning. You think you implant this device and it's artificial. And it's not the total artificial heart. This only helps one side of the of the heart but uh, it is a device and patients carry around batteries it gets powered and Yes, they will set off uh, metal detectors at the airport, etc. But uh, it truly is a life-saving therapy. Um, but it has a good 25-year track record.
2: Is it like a backpack size or a lunch bag size? What is it?
3: Yeah, the the, the peripheral components have improved and gotten smaller, as have the pumped uh, designs.
1: So peripheral, you mean what is on the outside? The what control is on the outside. device,
3: exactly. Okay. So the device gets implanted into the left ventricle, hooked up to the aorta, which is the main uh, artery leaving the uh, uh, heart, then gives to the body so
1: the left Uh, ventricle is the part of the the heart that pumps the blood out to the rest of the body
3: that is correct and is that the one the part of the heart that fails most often most often that is correct and due to heart attack or there's many reasons we can kind of go into that a little bit who are candidates etc but from a device standpoint tremendous modifications through the years they've gotten smaller they're easier to implant more durable um, since the um, uh, improvements in kind of the early 2000s, really there has not been a mechanical failure of these pumps, so very durable. So patients can live 10, 15-plus years. So if you look at a patient who's not a transplant candidate, has advanced heart failure, you could put this in. Not only do they live longer compared to medical ma- management, they also um, feel better. Every study has shown improved quality of life with these and how do you implant this? Well, what does it take? Yep. What this kind is of open heart surgery. It th- is through the breastbone on the heart lung machine. That's the standard way. Um, for patients who are abridged to transplant or, or in whom we are putting this to get them to a transplant, we could do a mini incision on the side of the chest and then a small incision to hook it up to the aorta. So we can put this in in a minimally invasive fashion as well. But there's a wire that comes out right through the chest wall that's connected to, what, a battery? That is true. The um, This is probably the, the Achilles heel of this therapy is that patients have a power cord basically exiting their body. It goes into the peripheral components. We kind of got off track Mm -hmm. from that, but hooked up to a battery and a controller. They're small. Patients can wear them on their belt, and uh, some patients get fishing jackets, hunting jackets to put all their little, it's kind Mm -hmm. of a bat-type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is actually several companies that um, really help with the peripherals. You know, A lot of patients accessorize. They have different bags, different coats and jackets, et cetera. They, They have fun with it. And when you say
1: advanced heart failure, that means that everything else, pretty much non-invasive, has
3: been tried. That is exactly right. Okay. And typically the history is that these patients have chronic heart failures over a period of five, ten years. And how many people are there like that in the United States? Well, millions of people, like you talk about, have heart failure, the garden variety heart failure, advanced heart failure, one to two hundred thousand, I think, per year. Uh, have what we call advanced heart failure and who would be candidates for this therapy.
2: So everyone who's using a VAD is waiting for a heart transplant?
3: Not necessarily. Okay. So we can put in the heart, uh, the, the LVAD either as a bridge. Mm-hmm. If you're a candidate for a heart transplant, someone's failing, you put in the device. It helps, you know, take blood to the whole body. It keeps them preserved until a point where they get a heart transplant. That's called the bridge to transplant or BTT. Now, destination therapy is someone who is not a Transplant candidate. So um, we can talk about uh, who's a transplant candidate in a bit. But uh, if you're not a candidate, you get it. And that's called destination therapy. Not quite Hawaii as a destination, but destination therapy, you could live. We have people over a decade on the device
1: really yeah. and they and they simply don't fail but i suspect you have to be pretty careful that
3: your batteries are charged oh that's right they get these patients get extensive uh, education uh, one of the requirements is that they have a caregiver mm-hmm. who can help them um, and so that caregiver also gets the education so each battery only lasts between eight and ten hours but you have two sets of batteries, so it could be up to kind of 16 to 20 hours. You take one out, you recharge them. It's kind of like your phone. It dies and, or gets lower, and you recharge it.
2: Is I mean, you say they keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, what is going to be the, I mean, can you make it small enough that it's something that is implanted and then can be charged like we've got, as you're using phones as an example, you've got phones that can be charged just by holding something against it?
3: I think the, the next big frontier with, um, device therapy is to make it wireless. Fully implantable, like a pacemaker. Mm-hmm. They can't get that small. Pacemaker generator is very small. But to get, to get to the point where you don't have this thing exiting you, I think that's the biggest detractor in terms of patients. There is great research out there and some prototypes. They've actually powered a device, uh, totally implantable. Um, for about three hours so we're getting there not quite there but uh, the charging system would be analogous to like your a cordless toothbrush where you kind of sit it in a pod you have a receiver mm-hmm. coil and a power source etc and it would charge you know through your skin so that's kind of the next step. You know, I know
1: surgeons don't always like to talk about the complications, but that's I'm right. sure there are some. You said reliability is is not a problem with this device, but there have to be others. And, and the fact that you mentioned there is a cord that comes out through the chest wall, infection has to be a, an issue,
3: doesn't it? Absolutely. There's a myriad of complications, and that's why we really look at patients to see are they a candidate or not. These patients are on blood thinners. The, the majority of the cardiac output goes through these devices and so they can get clot in there. If, they're, um, too, uh, if their blood is too thin on the blood thinner, they can bleed. Um, the, the drive line, again, not only is it a detractor from quality of life, but it is the interface between the outer dirty world and the inner sterile world. And so that is about 30% of patients can get infection of that drive line. And do they have
1: to, I presume, care for that on a daily basis and put some sort of antibiotic ointment
3: around it? Or how do they care for it? Surprisingly, this heals very well. Uh, the skin is amazing; just heals around that area. But typically, what happens? It, to answer your question, yes, they they care for it on a every other day basis or so. Um, but if you tug that drive line and break the integrity, then that's usually the setup for the infection. So yeah, it is meticulous care of that drive line. How do you recharge the batteries? Can you plug this thing into a wall outlet? Also, yes, they have a console and they can plug the device. the controller into the wall they don't need to be on battery power at all but if they're up and mobile and out living their life like most of our patients we hope return to you know productive life they're on their batteries so while at home yeah they can be hooked up to the wall
1: so you said there's a hundred to two hundred thousand people in the united states who are potential candidates how many of these have you done
3: this is the great irony, big frustration from a, from a VAD perspective only about 5 to 7000 implants per year and you're looking you're right at 100 150,000 people who are potential candidates for it. And there's many reasons for that, referrals, uh when to refer, who is a candidate. I think a lot of misunderstanding perhaps in the field about who would be a candidate for it. And I think some refer, referring physicians are maybe afraid of the therapy, like we talked about, a lot of complications. You got this power cord, et cetera. Do the patients really want to live like that? But sure. it is um, very stable therapy, very durable, and the outcomes just get better and better.
2: Well, who is a candidate or, or what would make you not a candidate?
3: Sure. Um, so we, they go through an extensive evaluation, not quite as extensive as transplant, uh, unless you're a bridge to transplant with a device, but from... From the standpoint and what CMS, the insurance companies, and from a clinical standpoint, if your ejection fraction is less than 25% and you have an exercise capacity below 30% of predicted, you are a candidate, barring anything else like you're on dialysis or have COPD and you're on home oxygen therapy. Basically, if your end organs are preserved and you are dealing with heart failure, you're a potential candidate.
1: Our guest is heart surgeon Dr. John Stulak. We've been talking about the ventricular assist device, which in many cases is used as a bridge to transplant, meaning the patient has uh, extensive bad heart failure and they're waiting for a heart transplant. So the first heart transplant, if uh, I'm correct, was done about 30 years ago. And how many have you done since? How many have been done since?
3: Yeah, at Mayo Clinic, it was about 30 years. Actually, the field just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first heart transplant done in South Africa. Um, But, uh, yes, our program started in the late 1980s uh, by Christopher McGregor and uh, Richard Daly, uh, one of whom, Dr. Daly, is still the head of the program here. Uh, We do between 30 and 40 per year. Um, We are in kind of the 80th percentile of programs. We're very proud of that. And um, this year is headed to be a banner year. Um, halfway through the year, here we've done in the mid twenties, so we are mm, nice. we are headed for a banner year. Um, so about five hundred plus transplants. So you would do more if there were more donors, right? Absolutely. Um,
1: you've got how many people in
3: the in the country on the waiting list? Yes. Um, a couple thousand, okay. about three thousand or so uh, on the waiting list. If you look at transplant from an epi- epidemiology um, standpoint, between 2,000 and about 2,200 have been done very consistently for the last 20 to 25 years. Basically, it's limited by donor availability. There's only so many donors. But if you look from a, um, that's why we're talking about LVAD is such a good therapy for um, for advanced heart failure. It is because the limitations of, of heart transplantation um it's basically based on donor availability now our um our uh, catchment area is Minnesota and the two dakotas so by area we have the largest donor area in the country however as you know with living up here it's mm-hmm. a very sparse in population so really population drives the donor pool so big cities metropolitan areas if you need a heart
1: transplant are you better off going and living in a big city? I mean, do you have a better chance of getting a transplant if you're in a big city? And aren't most of the people
3: who are donors trauma victims? That is correct. Trauma victims, the uh, victims of violence. Unfortunately, we say the knife and gun club, but, you know, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, that's why the big city, you know, basically high density population areas. So even if when we have patients on our transplant list, Uh, we do, if the patient's sick enough, encourage patients to get dual listed, um, and they do. They may go to New York and be double listed in here and Columbia, let's say, or something like that. So, you know, it does, um, it it does increase the, uh, the chances. A lot of our patients in Mayo, Arizona, they go to be double listed there because they have a nice catchment area of the Los Angeles area, Mm -hmm. Phoenix, Scottsdale, et cetera. So their donor pool is heavy, is heavier. Um, So from our standpoint, we do encourage patients uh, potentially to get dual listed. How long between the
1: time uh, the heart, the person dies and the transplant, how long do you have? How long can you preserve that that heart?
3: Usually uh, from the minute we uh, cross clamp and harvest the heart at the donor hospital. um, And this is what limits where we can get donors from about four hours to get it in the patient. For an adult, pediatrics can go a little longer, but the minute you harvest that heart, It's lights and sirens to the airport, it's from the airport, it's to the donor hospital, and then we sew it in in a very expedited fashion, so about four hours.
2: Is there a main reason why people need a heart transplant? There's two main
3: reasons. One is what we call ischemic cardiomyopathy or coronary artery disease. Uh, Patients may have had multiple heart attacks through the years. The other one we don't have a reason for, and we call it idiopathic cardiomyopathy or the dilated cardiomyopathy. Those typically make up about... 90 percent of the garden variety advanced heart failure
1: the muscle just
3: doesn't work just doesn't work there's either an inherent cardiomyopathy or they've had heart attacks where there's now scar
2: and so going back to the vad then does that work better for both of those camps
3: yeah both of those camps you know would be candidates for the lvad as well Now, the LVAD is good at helping the left side of the heart, but you also have a right ventricle, like we talked about the ventricles of the heart. And that's the one that pumps; gets the blood from the body and pumps it to the lungs. That is correct. Now, with an LVAD, it doesn't really help the right side of the heart. So if you have someone who has very bad biventricular heart failure, for instance, here at Mayo Clinic, one of the big populations we have is the amyloid population or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that is a cardiomyopathy that affects both ventricles. So if you have a severely dysfunctional right ventricle, you're not a good LVAD candidate. So that would be an indication where you'd prefer heart transplant over LVAD. I know the surgery takes a while, but tell us about it Uh, from start to finish. what, What do you do? It's uh, kind of like a wedding. You'd think that uh, more things would go wrong between the donor team, us implanting, et cetera, but it uh, depends on how many prior operations the uh, patient has had. Um, but typically, four to six hours by the time we kind of do the sternotomy, get in there.
1: Sternotomy, mean you, you split the breastbone?
3: We go right through the breastbone on the heart-lung machine, and, and we try to...
1: open up the chest? Sure do. Okay.
3: And then we try to time it so that we remove the old sick heart as the new donor team is bringing in the new heart, and then we sew it right in. And the patient is asleep and they're on bypass. That is correct. When do you put them on bypass? Uh, Basically, when we know the donor team has landed in the plane and that they're safe on the ground, then we remove the heart. We go on the heart-lung machine, remove the heart.
1: And then it's just a matter of sewing everything back together. That is correct. Pretty
3: easy, huh? Pretty easy.
2: (laughs) Is it heart only or is it usually heart and lung? Is there a combination?
3: One of the differentiators here at Mayo is we do a lot of combined organ transplants, um, heart kidneys for the kidney failure, heart liver kidneys for the amyloid population that also affects the heart. We have about 15% of our uh, transplants that we do are combined organs. We've even done a heart-lung-liver kidney. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we... Heart-lung-liver kidney. That is That's kind a of, Like a complete makeover. <laughs> that is. <laughs>
1: all, right, all right,
2: so about. the plane lands. You say, all right, the plane is safely landed. We can take out the bad heart. Yep. Then what do you... You get the new one just sewn in. Yep. Snap your fingers... Well, what do you do to get it start? How do you know that it's going to work?
3: The heart's an amazing organ. You give it blood, and it'll start pumping. It has an internal pacemaker, and the majority of the time, we take off the cross clamp and give it blood, and that heart starts right back up after sitting in a bucket of ice for four hours. You don't have start. to shock it not, normally. Not typically. Pretty neat. Sometimes, yes, but, yeah, the heart's an amazing organ.
1: So what's the future hold? I mean, what's your hope for the future, both with regard to the VAD, which I think you've talked about, is that the devices have come a long ways, but hopefully they will someday be wireless. What about heart transplants? I mean, the, the big problem is not enough donors,
3: right? And yeah. there's not a lot you can do about that. No, there's not. Um, a lot of research is going into xenotransplantation where you, you can genetically engineer a baboon um, to have it be that patient's genetic subtype. But I think the next frontier is stem cells and being able to, quote, grow a heart uh, in a jar. Then you wouldn't have to worry about the rejection. Then there would be no rejection. You're going to grow it to be uh, genetically uh, you know, identical to that person. Dr. John Stulak, thanks so much for being with us. an honor to be here with two celebrities. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, I like this guy. I see you are. <laughs> Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about lung volume reduction for COPD patients.
1: And we'll discuss ovarian cancer with a Mayo Clinic expert.
2: Coming up, a Health Minute with Vivian
0: Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Ah, that morning cup of joe. It's a must-do for many people, but can you drink too much? Some consumers might find recent news stories and research papers about the risks and benefits of coffee confusing. Dr. Donald Hensroot, director of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, says that for most healthy adults, there's no need to worry about pouring that second or third cup. He says coffee is associated with many different health benefits, type 2 diabetes, reduced risk of heart disease, reduced risk of certain cancers, improved mood, reduced risk of depression, Parkinson's disease, the list goes on and on. He says that although there is a tiny bit of a substance in coffee called acrylamide, that's toxic in large amounts, the benefit a drinking coffee outweigh the risks. He says it's the highest source of antioxidants, and so even decaffeinated coffee has been associated with a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes, similar to caffeinated coffee. He adds that pregnant women and people who have side effects such as headache, nervousness, or heart palpitations should limit caffeine. He says to drink what you enjoy, and if you're susceptible to the effects of caffeine, decaffeinated coffee is an excellent choice. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the CDC, about 16 million adults in the U.S. have COPD. Now, that's short for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and it means you have difficulty breathing. Unfortunately, there is no cure, and patients often end up requiring oxygen just to stay alive. But there are some treatment options, and one of which is called lung volume reduction.
2: I'm not a doctor, but I'm not sure that sounds good. Well, you're going to
1: hear all about it, right? Today,
2: <laughs> Mayo Clinic doctors are now able to perform the procedure in a minimally invasive way without a major surgical procedure. Joining us in studio to tell us about this technique and the results are pulmonologists, that's lung specialists. Perfect. Dr. Erica Dell of Mayo Clinic Rochester, and from the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, Dr. Sebastian fernandez busi Welcome both of you to the program.
1: Thank you. Gentlemen, welcome. A great topic. COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Tell us what it is, Dr. Adele. Well, it's a condition primarily the result of excessive
4: smoking exposure, predominantly those that have been smoking cigarettes, but we also see it in people who may have been using fires in their home to cook. But in the United States, predominantly it's due to smoking. What happens is you get injury, inflammation of the airway, which leads to thickening excess secretions. And in many patients, you actually see destruction of the lung architecture, which we call emphysema. So the end result, as you said, is difficulty breathing. It's obstruction
1: of the small airways so people have a hard time getting air out. So really the main risk factor is smoking. Absolutely. And the complications. Why is this such a bad problem other than the fact that they have difficulty breathing?
4: There's loss of productivity, recurrent hospitalizations because of it. The quality of life is significantly impaired as a result of their COPD.
2: Is this uh, lung volume reduction? Is that the only way to treat COPD, or what what else can you do?
4: The standard management for COPD is to enhance or to reduce the inflammation of the airway, so inhaled anti-inflammatories like corticosteroids and inhaled bronchodilators. So in people with severe emphysema, there are two categories of bronchodilators that people use that effectively result in opening up the airway as best they can. If the patients then are needing oxygen, oxygen is actually the only medication that's been shown to extend survival. The rest is all about reducing hospitalizations and improving quality of
2: life. So, Dr. Fernandez-Busi, tell me a little bit. It doesn't sound good, but explain lung volume reduction.
5: Yeah. So, as Dr. Edel was was mentioning, when, when you have a patient that are, is on full medical treatment with all the inhalers, with oxygen supplementation, and and on pulmonary rehabilitation, and still that patient experienced severe shortness of breath and poor quality of life because of that. Now we have this option of endoscopic lung volume reduction. We knew that actually lung volume reduction, surgical lung volume reduction, used to improve the uh, breathing of these patients in a subgroup of patients uh, with emphysema. But now we have this minimally invasive option that can achieve the same results, uh, meaning lung volume reduction uh, for these patients. Yes.
1: So, so tell me, uh, why, if the, the lungs don't work very well anyway, would you want to
5: make them smaller? Yes, very good. So as Dr. Adele was mentioning, when you have damage of the lung architecture, that part of the lung becomes ineffective. It's an ineffective lung and becomes a, a, a bigger. Actually, that ineffective lung is a long lung that compresses the healthier part of the lung. Mm-hmm. So. So, uh, th- not the
1: uh, lung is not affected all the same. So there are parts of the lung that are worse and parts of the lung that are better.
5: Well, in some patients, yes. So in some patients, uh, there is more damage in certain areas, and actually those are the patients that benefit more from this treatment. So if we are able to reduce that ineffective lung, the size of that ineffective part of the lung, uh, if we are able to deflate that, that will give more space for the healthier part of the lung to expand and function, and the patient will experience uh, better breathing and, and, of course, better quality of life.
1: Can you tell by looking which is the bad part and which is the good part?
4: You can. You can uh, the, the CAT scan or the uh, radiograph called a computerized tomography will show the various densities within the lung. Can I add to what uh, Dr. Bushi sure just said? Can. You know, I'm a very simple Kansas boy. So when I think about the mechanics of the lung, it's basically they fill up with air because the lung wants to collapse the smaller uh, bronchi, the breathing tubes. So the diaphragms become flattened, and you can actually see this on a chest x-ray. Even an orthopedic surgeon could see this on a chest (laughs) x-ray. Their chest is hyperinflated, and when you see patients with emphysema, they breathe with their accessory muscles. So what we're trying to do is reduce the amount of gas in their thorax, in their chest. Their diaphragm assumes more effective positioning, and now the diaphragm can help them breathe. So it is allowing better lung to expand, but more importantly, allowing a flattened diaphragm to come up and participate again in the work of breathing.
1: And the advantage of this is that you can do it through a scope as opposed to having to open the chest and and remove part of the lung.
5: That's correct. So, so we do it under a bronchoscopy, a flexible bronchoscopy. A bronchoscopy is a flexible tube that has a a camera at the tip. A patient is under anesthesia, and we go down with this flexible tube through the mouth, into the lungs, and we go to the area that we already have pre-selected as the most uh, damaged area, and we placed uh, tiny valves, and these are one-way valves that uh, do not allow the air to get into that part of the lung when we breathe in, but when we breathe out, it does allow the air to get out of that part of the lung. So with time, that part of ineffective lung will get deflated. It will shrink, allowing more space for the healthier lung.
1: Wow, fabulous! And is
5: there hospitalization
1: required? And it can can people breathe better right away?
5: Yes. So um, the, we will li- we like to keep the patient in the hospital for about three days, uh, and then patient can go home. And usually they experience an, an improvement in their breathing over time. It's not it's not right away. Uh, so usually it's over the first few weeks. Have you
1: been doing this long enough that you can tell us about the results? how successful this, this procedure is?
5: Yeah, so um, I want to clarify something. So not all patients who have emphysema are candidate for this treatment. So patients who meet the requirements um, that we uh, go ahead and place these valves, about 80% of them will achieve significant benefits on their daily activities. Um, So, you know, it's it's a very promising treatment. 80% success rate. You can't argue with that. That's right. Endoscopic lung volume reduction.
1: It's a new minimally invasive procedure to help patients with severe emphysema. The early results obviously encouraging. And it has some real advantages. Shorter hospital stay and fewer side effects. Our thanks to lung specialist Dr. Sebastian Fernandez-Busi from the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Welcome to Rochester, by the way. Thank you. And Dr. Eric Cadell. Thanks, gentlemen, for being with us. Thanks, thanks for, thank for having you very us. Much. Thank you. You know, Tracy, we've made a lot of progress in treating cancer in the past couple of decades. Most cancers, that is. But there are some cancers that just seem to defy our best efforts and our latest treatments. And one of those is cancer of the ovary. Curing or managing ovarian cancer is often a challenge. In fact, the average survival rate for ovarian cancer is just 45%. Now, that means that less than half of patients survive five years following a diagnosis.
2: When you compare that to breast cancer, 90% of women survive five years. Prostate cancer, 100% survival. Interesting. Cancer of the colon and rectum, 67% of patients survive five years. So why is cancer of the ovary so difficult to treat and is there hopes for better outcomes in the future? Joining us on the phone from Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona is gynecologic oncologist, or in lay terms, women's cancer specialist and surgeon, Dr. Christina Butler. Dr. Butler, welcome to the program. It's nice to meet you.
6: Thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: Dr. Butler, so why is cancer of the ovary so difficult to treat?
6: Ovarian cancer is encountered at an advanced stage. The ovaries reside uh, in the abdominal cavity and have great potential to become abnormal with uh, difficulty in detecting their growth.
1: So symptoms can be pretty vague.
6: Symptoms are quite vague. Uh, These can be abdominal bloating, urinary urgency, abdominal pain. Very often these women don't present to a gynecologist, but perhaps an internist, a urologist. And having a heightened suspicion for these types of symptoms in women is just very important for detecting this type of cancer.
2: It seems like over the last five years, however, maybe the word is starting to get out about these vague symptoms that you should still pay attention to them and not just brush them under the carpet.
6: I absolutely agree and educate women frequently with that exact advice. Uh, It's very important to be attuned to your body and have an awareness of these symptoms. There's been great publication that women affected with ovary cancer have these vague symptoms over 30 times a month compared to women without cancer that have these types of symptoms maybe three or four times a month.
1: And And the other problem, too, is it's pretty rare, isn't it? I mean, we all know someone who has had cancer of the ovary, but uh, compared to other cancers, cancer of the ovary is pretty rare, isn't it?
6: It is very rare, uh, about 1.7% in general population, which accounts to about 1 in 73 women. So it's quite rare.
1: Any screening tests? I mean, we talked about the, the symptoms and how vague they are and how difficult it therefore is to make a diagnosis. Are there, are there any screening tests that you can do to find women uh, with ovarian cancer earlier?
6: I think the best screening is, again, being attentive to your body and when something doesn't seem right, seeking evaluation. If nothing is found abnormal, continuing to seek evaluation and workup. We have best studied screening methods in high risk populations. So, if a woman's risk of ovary cancer is about you know 13 to 45 percent, screening does seem to provide benefit. However, for the general population, given that the risk or the rate of cancer is so low, screening doesn't seem to be available.
1: And who is at risk?
6: At what- risk patients would be those perhaps with underlying genetic predisposition to ovary cancer.
1: That would be like a family history?
6: Yeah, family history is very key, particularly first-degree relatives with ovarian cancer history. Also women with BRCA mutation or Lynch mutation testing.
1: I think part of the problem there, though, is how many women really know that they have the BRCA gene? I mean, there are not that many women who have been tested, are there?
6: I agree. So in general, we don't test women. You're exactly right. Um, In some women diagnosed with breast cancer at an early age, this testing comes into play. Breast cancer is more common than ovarian cancer. Um, But you're right. Most women don't know their mutation status.
2: If you have the unusual symptoms, then how do you go ahead and diagnose it?
1: Right. Once you hopefully suspect it, hopefully earlier rather than later, how do you nail down the diagnosis? How do you make a definitive diagnosis?
6: Yeah, so it all starts with a physical exam uh, by a care provider, a physician perhaps. And this can also go in conjunction with a more thorough evaluation of the pelvis, which would be a pelvic ultrasound, providing a, a, a clear view of the ovary. The imaging may then lead to CAT scan, a fuller evaluation of the abdominal cavity, and very often there are some simple blood tests we can use to help in the form of CA125 at the tumor marker, also a tumor marker called HE4, and these can help kind of narrow down other possibilities and hone in on the diagnosis.
1: So if you have these blood tests available and you suspect uh, a woman might have cancer, because even because of some vague symptoms, can you do the blood test to help you determine that she might have ovarian cancer?
6: I think yes. If symptoms warrant further testing, absolutely imaging or blood testing would be very reasonable. And, and then
1: biopsy next?
6: Uh, biopsy may be indicated, uh, although it's not always necessary. So, right. And so you can
1: sometimes tell definitively on the imaging study that it in fact is cancer.
6: That is true. And, and most patients, I would say, don't uh, require a biopsy. Okay. What about treatment? Yeah. So our best treatment for ovary cancer is uh, combined therapy utilizing surgery hand in hand with chemotherapy.
2: Which do you do first?
6: It varies depending on the individual. In some instances, and I would say traditionally, surgery is first, followed by chemotherapy. However, we have newer science and uh, individualized care, whereas uh, at this point, many women begin with chemotherapy, then have surgery, and then have additional chemotherapy.
1: And can you give some of the chemotherapy into the abdomen and, and rather than all intravenous or systemic?
6: We do. And... The ovarian cancers are very often confined to the abdominal cavity, which makes the abdominal chemotherapy regimens very effective because we can place the chemotherapy directly where the tumor cells are sitting in the abdominal cavity, uh, thereby giving very high concentrations of treatment to the area of need.
2: Does ovarian cancer reoccur often if if you can survive that treatment?
6: There is recurrence risk, particularly with advanced stage of diagnosis. So stage 3 and 4 patients are more often to recur later. However, if we're able to detect it at stage 1 or 2, the recurrence weight rates are far less.
1: Because of the combination of surgery and chemotherapy, are you improving your results, improving survival in these women?
6: So we have three beautiful randomized trials from the previous decades that have shown excellent survival advantage using the abdominal chemotherapy. More recently, we have some conflicting data with a trial that did not yield results as promising.
1: What about a blood test? Are you working on a new screening test that might make it uh, possible to diagnose these women earlier?
6: We absolutely are. I would say countless hours are spent in the lab looking for biomarkers for early detection, anything we can do to detect it as soon as possible.
2: Is there any research that we should be excited about?
6: We are on cutting-edge investigations for an ovarian cancer vaccine. And in our Phase 2 development of this, with very promising outcomes, this vaccine is being studied in patients that have survived ovarian cancer with hopes that it will reduce recurrence and perhaps in the future hold a place for preventing initial diagnosis.
1: Well, We all think about a vaccine as preventing something. So it would work both to prevent the disease, hopefully in the future, but at the present time you use the vaccine to help prevent recurrence.
6: That is true.
1: And when you said phase two, tell us what that means.
6: Uh, This means we are in our second clinical trial studying this vaccine based on phase one evidence that was very promising. And hoping to move to phase three. As we continue to investigate this vaccine therapy, uh, we will lead to more advanced trials in the future.
1: Yeah, so uh, right now you're using it in women who have been diagnosed or being treated with ovarian cancer to help prevent recurrence. But so at some point in the future, hopefully you will m- have a vaccine to actually prevent ovarian cancer.
6: Very true. That is
2: exciting.
1: All right, cancer of the ovary, relatively rare, only 22,000 cases or so a year in the United States. It is often diagnosed late, and the symptoms are vague. There is, at the present time, no good, reliable screening test, but Dr. Butler and her colleagues are certainly working on one. And it sounds like the survival is improving, but still, the majority of women die within five years of diagnosis.
2: Pay attention to those signs and symptoms.
1: But there is promise. New, better treatments are being developed, as we've just heard. Our thanks to women's cancer specialist and surgeon, Dr. Christina Butler from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Dr. Butler, thanks so much for joining us.
6: Thank you. And that's our
2: program for this week.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who you know.